Life isn't a series of hits that knock you off course and, and push you to an end destination. Life is a series of recovering from those hits and getting to where you want to go, pointing back to where you want to go and getting there. Welcome to the Men on Purpose podcast, featuring dynamic conversations with emerging and established visionary men on purpose. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate the men on purpose who are committed, creative, courageous change makers, living their best, most fulfilling life possible. Now, here's the host of Men on Purpose, Ian Lobos. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Men on Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobos. Today, super exciting show, and I mean super exciting. You'll see me, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see me taking notes the whole time. Uh, Rich Curtis is my guest, and he wrote a book called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And that might not mean a lot to you, but once you listen to this, you'll really understand why, why that and how that is massively important and massively important to your life. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Then I'll get into some of the other things and right into the episode. I'm going to give you a list, right? And we dive deep into these things. So non-serving choices, asking yourself questions, stories, craft outcomes, the brain and how it functions and how it automatically does things, neuroplasticity and wiring. We're going to talk about traumatic stories, deep grooves that they carve in your brain like a needle on a record. If you, if you bump it, it'll automatically fall to the deepest groove. We're going to get deep into that. The power of choice and your beliefs, the locus of control. If you've never heard of that, Google that. It's really cool. Um, how your stories are completely 100% made up by you or they were instilled in you by mom and dad, school, and society. How we're meaning-making machines. We're going to talk about language and emotion and how they play in. We're going, to do, we're going to talk about deciding is not actually your decision. The stories are not actually yours. They're made up by you. We're going to talk about the power of questions and how they take you out of the cycle. We're going to talk about how you can actually get yourself back in, questions to ask yourself, course corrections, course connectors, identity. We're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about bedtime rituals. Literally all that stuff, right? So with that said, um, Rich, oh man, this, this episode is so damn good. So damn good that I took it long and we had a little break in the, in the middle of it because I, I lost internet connection, but we got it back. We're going to splice it together. You might not notice, but if you do, don't worry about it. So I always, I like to start off the show by thanking you, giving my gratitude to you, the listeners who make this show what it is, a top 1% podcast in the world. And we took this podcast from almost being mothballed, almost being shelved to what it is today as a top 1% as a resource for people to have information to shift and change their lives. You know, the commitment to educate, elevate, empower, enrich, and evolve men to be on purpose. That is the goal. The mission is being hit every freaking time. I'm hearing back from you guys. I'm loving life. I'm loving it. And it's because of you that this podcast is top 1%. So thank you. If you've not subscribed to the show yet, do me a favor, do you a favor so it gets out to more people and this mission can keep building. Subscribe to the podcast. Hit us up with a five-star review. If you need anything, you want to know about the guests, you want to know where to find them or any past guests, you can hit us up on the website, ianlobos.com or menonpurposepodcast.com. Nice and easy. Want to send me an email? Want to hit me up on Instagram at menonpurposepodcast or 
mentalpurposepodcast at gmail.com. Super simple. Make sure you check out our free Facebook community. Tons of resources in there. We dive deep into the topics. I do coaching in there. I, ask, I answer questions in there. We've got free giveaways for, for people that are in the community and community members. It's really, really awesome. And you'll get my free ebook, The Four Steps to Actually Changing Your Life. Um, make sure you check out our Frontrunner events at frontrunner.group. We've got live coaching events, weekend retreats, masterminds, four-day deep dive personal involvement retreats. If you're looking to get something done fast, that's it. Next one's coming up in July, frontrunner.group for more information. Now, let me tell you about Rich. He is just a phenomenal guy. Rich Curtis, he has always been a guide all his life. He spent over a decade as a raft and mountain guide on the rivers and mountains of the American West and as a real estate entrepreneur. Now he spends time guiding people through life's inflection points as a best-selling author, story expert, and success coach. Rich guides, coaches, and writes, and speaks to help entrepreneurs, CEOs, adventurers, and go-getters actually rewrite their stories. Not the stories of their lives, but the stories that they tell themselves in their minds. He helps them get unstuck and actually live their dreams. And that's why Rich and I really hit it off because we're on the same mission. As a passionate student of power of story, neuroscience, positive psychology, and behavioral psychology, Rich believes in a world where people are invested in the process of being better tomorrow than they are today. His life's work, which includes this book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, have been helping people get there nonstop. Outside of work, Rich is a dedicated father of two, husband, traveler, and outdoor adventure. Listen, no more talk. You got to listen to this podcast all the way through. There is gold at to the last sentence. Here is Rich Curtis. Thanks for listening. All right, Rich, let's do it, man. Change your story, change your life. This is a, a, a hugely important topic that I talk about a lot in my coaching business and, and changing your story, not what's happened to you, but the story you tell yourself about what's happened to you is, in my opinion, crucial. And I know you share the same thing. So today we're going to educate the audience and help them evolve the stories that they keep running, the tape that keeps playing in their head in that present moment to create that present moment. And this is going to be powerful, man. So tell everybody about you. And uh, obviously, I just told everybody in your, in your bio, but like you have a lot more depth than that. So share your history and the stories you were telling yourself and like how you got through all that and, and became an expert on, on the stories we tell ourselves and how we can get out of our pain and our past programming from that shift. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, I can tell you for sure, I never set out to be a self-help author. <laughs> that, was not, that was not in my, uh, my 30-year plan, but uh, I was a mountain guide and a raft guide for about a decade, lived in the back of my truck, uh, traveled year-round, 100 nights in a sleeping bag, that life. And then when I became a family man, I became an entrepreneur. And, and uh, so that's my, my sort of 30,000 foot uh, background is, um, and I've always approached entrepreneurship uh, from a guide perspective. I'm here to guide people through these major transactions in their life and through figuring things out. And then when this coaching evolution happened, that's, that's the same thing. So essentially, um, I've been a guide since I was about 14 years old, and that's, that's still what I do. Uh, but it turns out some of those guide stories didn't serve me super well when I hit some, some bumps in the road in my life. And so we all sort of, I think, feel like our life is supposed to be this, this up and to the right hockey stick trajectory from, you know, not as good when we're young to killing it when we're older. Yeah. And the truth is there's a lot of bumps and hits along the way. It's not a smooth, smoother ride. And so for me, I took one of those hits when um, my mom passed away uh, about 41 days before the birth of my first child. 
I know you're, you're a dad, so you can yeah. imagine you know, what that would be like. One of the most important people in your life never gets to meet one of the most important people in your life. Yeah. And I was suffering, really, really suffering from that. Um, and, and I didn't even know it uh, because um, as men, we kind of really good at, at compartmentalizing and moving forward. So I was still being a good dad. I was still you know, being a successful entrepreneur. And anybody who was around me wouldn't have known. They didn't know I was suffering. Um, and, and I was, I was really, really suffering. I was getting up in the morning, sitting on the side of the bed, having that moment where you're like, is this all there is? Is this all there's going to be for the next 30 years? Is this how I'm going to feel? Right. And that's not how I usually am. And that, that was really hurting me, but I couldn't figure it out. I was too in it. I was too in it to figure it out. And we often as men don't build these, um, these social support networks, real ones in real life with real human beings yeah. to help us through these moments of depression and things. So, so my friends just saw me acting pretty normal and they didn't know I needed any help. And so away I went. And, and then I had this epiphany one day and I think you know, some people, they have these grand epiphanies like you know, sitting on the slopes of the Andes, taking ayahuasca under the stars with a shaman or whatever. Uh, mine was in the Costco parking lot screaming at my brother over the phone having a fight. <laughs> and so uh, I'm actually circling Costco in my truck, yelling in the phone at my brother. Even unbeknownst to me, there's this little security guard and his little golf cart chasing me down because someone had phoned in the crazy man yelling in his phone circling. But uh, I'm yelling at my brother and I just blurted out, I'm failing you. I'm failing. Anne. that's my wife. Uh, and we failed mom. We just stood there and watched her die. She fought for all five of us of five brothers every day of her life. And we did nothing for her. We watched her die. And this was about two years after my mom's death. So I'd already been suffering for two years at this point. And that story came flying out and it hit me. I nailed the brakes. The little security guard man almost rear ended me. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sitting there in a Costco parking lot of all places just like I got struck by lightning, could not believe that story was inside of me. Um, and and, and I, I'd never engaged with that topic in the two years since my mom's death. I'd never said out loud or consciously thought I failed mom. I did nothing. And nobody in my family had ever said those words. This story uh, was inside me. It was working on me. It was the root of all of my suffering. Yeah. And I didn't know it was there. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it, it really, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And then I had to ask myself, well, is that true? Um, and more importantly, even if it's true, is that story serving me, right? So our stories can be true, uh, but they can still be creating really powerfully painful, bad outcomes in our lives, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I, I sort of started looking at that, um, that day, the day my mom died. And my mom had a DNR, a do not resuscitate order. And so uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, that means if we're clear, this is only going one way and I'm going to die today, you got to stop working on me and let me die. That was her choice. Um, now my background as a professional raft guide and mountain guide was, uh, uh, I had a savior complex, right? Like we, we sort of gifted these naturally as men when we, when we're born, this savior complex, um, we have to spend a life unlearning that. And then you go out and you become a guide. And I can tell you, it doesn't help you unlearn that. <laughs> so, you, you know, I had that nobody dies on my watch thing and it'd been reinforced. You know, I'd had heart attacks and cracked heads and broken ribs and all these people I'd brought home safely. I'd never lost anybody, thankfully. Um, and so sitting in that hospital and not being able to do anything was totally counter to my, my internal, like, I can save mom story. Um, so I think it hit me even harder than some of my other brothers because, uh, you know, we're trained to work on people until you can't work on them anymore or until you give them to somebody who knows more than you. Yeah. And I couldn't do any of that. So then I had to look for other ways that I was supporting my mom that day. Well, I'm the one who brought the DNR to the hospital. My dad asked me four in the morning, get the DNR and bring it down. 
And uh, I brought it in. And I asked my mom to rescind it because you can verbally rescind it at the time and she wouldn't. Uh, she wanted it to stand. So I handed it over to the docs, even though I knew what that meant. And I didn't want that to happen, but I handed it over to respect her wishes. She was a devout Catholic. So we got the priest in to do the final sacrament for her. Um, as the end was near, my dad couldn't get in the bed with her. There was that bed rail, that hospital bed rail. And I was fiddling with it and I couldn't figure it out. I got the nurse to get the bed rail down so dad could get in bed with her. We called the whole family. And by the time she died, there were 18 people in the room. Almost every one of them had a hand on her at the moment of her death. Um, she had a mask on her face and it was freaking her out. It was an oxygen mask. And my dad said, she doesn't like that. And so I asked the nurse, what's that doing? She said, it'll prolong her life 10 minutes. I said, all right, get that mask off her face, you know? And then in the final moments, and if you've never stood with someone when they've passed away, if you haven't been there for that moment, I, I don't know what everybody else's reaction is, but my reaction was to run. I wanted to run. Every fiber of my being didn't want to experience that. I wanted to be done with it. I wanted to run from it, but I didn't. I kept my hand on her leg. I kept my eyes on her eyes and I stayed with her until the moment she left this world. And so when I really looked at that day, the truth is I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. Sure. Now, both those stories are true, right? I stood there and did nothing and just watched mom die. Well, that's factually true, pretty much. Uh, and I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way. Those are both true stories for me. One of them was ruining my life, and one of them serves me and sets me free. Once I realized that, that, that was the power of story to me. This is, story is the programming code for your brain, right? If you're going to sit down and write, a, you know, program a website right now, you don't type in, make the background red. Right. You type in HTML. Same thing. Nothing gets into your brain or into your subconscious uh, if it can't get through your filters. And the way you access that filter database is through these stories. So after that, I kind of went into this two-year deep dive into the power of story, the neuroscience of story, and of happiness to sort of regain my happiness and walk back from this. And that's how I developed the systems that are, that are in the book. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to dig into there that I, I want to go back to. Uh, one of the first times that I ever learned about the power of the story, basically what happened versus the story you tell yourself around that, what happened was at Landmark many years ago. And, and even though I own a, a large coaching practice, you know, personal development, I still credit Landmark for a lot of my involvement because their, their technology, the, the stuff that they do is so deep that you never really experience that stuff. And it's actually to clean and clear out that past program. But the two things you said that really came up for me were non-serving choices that you were making and, and the, the, the time when you stopped and you were like, man, is this it? Like, is this really is? Is, there, is, there, is this all there is to life? And I know as an entrepreneur going through the shit I've been through, a uh, family man, like I, that was one of the questions I asked myself every morning when I was feeling anxiety and I was feeling pain and panic and fear. Like, is this really it? Am I just supposed to sell real estate for the rest of my life? Like, I don't feel like I'm making a difference here. I don't feel like I'm doing anything. Like, yeah, am I negotiating a price down for a buyer or getting higher price for a seller? Yeah, but am I replaceable? Am, am I replaceable tomorrow? Like, and I started doing this deathbed confessional where I was looking at the last day of my life, you know, a long time from now, hopefully. And I was thinking about all the things that I would be enjoying and all the things that I'd be regretting. And one of those things that I was going to regret heavily was not facing the fear 
of leaving this thing that I knew wasn't serving me. I was serving the clients. I love the clients. That's really it. And it was a, it was a catalyst for me to serve other people, but I knew that wasn't my calling. And as much as I was scared, the story I kept telling myself is, do you really want to take a chance again? Like you took a chance with your dad's business, you made a ton of money and then you lost it all and you almost lost your dad's business. And now you've built this real estate business up to seven figures. You really want to chance that you have a family. Now you're the provider. Your wife works with the, in the business. Like, are you sure you want to do that? And then I kept asking myself that question, but the story was so real to me of the pain I'd felt in the past, the program, the conditioning I'd felt in the past from leaving my dad's business and worrying that I'd never be as successful as him and never be someone that could, could build a life like he built for our family. And that shit was devastating to me. But the one day that I just said, is this really it? And my brain was like, it's not. You need to make different choices today. The story started to dissipate. And instead of me bringing the story into my present moment to create that present and future, I said, okay, this doesn't serve me anymore. This is not all there is to life. I had been running my coaching business for a couple of years. And I, and I finally made, wrapped my head around and I said, hey, the real estate business for me is the means to an end. It's going to supply me with the time and the financial resources I need to, to take my time and surrender to this coaching journey. And that was, that was it. And what had hit me and what had kind of hit me in your story was that my dad's mom died when he was 11 years old. And he carried that story for almost 50 years. And he used his business and alcohol to cope and to run and to... And to maybe avoid, you know? And so I know what happened with my dad when he changed his story, that it wasn't his fault and that she didn't leave him. She left. And it just so happened that he wasn't there that day. You know, that's it. That's all that happened. And you can, and, and, and I know people, people fight with me all the time about this. And I know they probably do with you, but they, they say, but that can't be it. Like, you know, there are people that have had traumatic things happen, like rape or, or witnessing a murder or, or a family member dying suddenly or something. And they can't get over the fact that that story isn't real because what happened is just what happened. That's it. It's, it's, it that's it. And it ended when it ended. And that's when it ended. And you, your brain, and I want to get into that with you, the psychology behind this. Like, why does your brain continue to perpetuate this story and compound it so that it's it's living in you, but it happened 30 years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a ton in what you just said. I, you know, my, my mind's racing of everything you respond to. It's funny because uh, sim similar story. So I've got 17 years uh, before this in residential real estate and same thing had, had to sort of uh, set the real estate journey, uh, you know, on uh, a different path to support the coaching journey once all this started. Yeah. And, and, and that was really driven by a story that we share with our kids. I think like, it's really important with your kids to, to give them a framework to develop a philosophy for life. And so one of our family's you know, basic stories is if you can help, help. Yeah. And so although I'm helping people achieve the American dream through real estate and all that, when I decided to take this risk and write the book and put myself out there and in the book, you know, I'm honest about the fact that I was like angry and frustrated and, and just ha like really going through these things and, and even admitting that I was depressed. You know, I admit that I was depressed in the book, which is hard. I'm the youngest of five Irish Italian boys. Like you, you don't get depressed. That's not a thing that happens, right? That's a weakness. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, 
but yeah, in terms of like the development of, of the stories and why we do what we do, even though these traumas happened 30 years ago, they're as real for you today as they were in that moment because you crafted a story in that moment and that story is implanted in your subconscious and you have a neural pathway that brings that story up like that. Yeah. So if your dad watched a movie about somebody losing their mom, boom, his brain just replays like a record that moment of when he lost his mom. And that's, it happened right then in that moment on the couch watching that movie for him again. And that's the, the power of, of story. And so to, to take that to like the deepest level, there's this woman um, down, down near you in the LA area, Mary Helen Imardino Yang at UCLA, a brilliant um, neuroscience researcher. And she um, has discovered that when someone tells you an inspiring story or a powerful story, even potentially when I told that story of my mom, if they, if they put you on an fMRI machine and see what's going on in your brain when someone tells you that story, there's a few different areas um, that, that light up, right? The, the midbrain lights up, um, which isn't as interesting. Um, the insula, which is actually two areas of your brain left and right light up, which are responsible for your gut function. That's why you can have that tingling feeling or that gut feeling when you hear a story because you're actually being stimulated in the part of your brain that controls your guts when you hear an inspiring story. But the most interesting part of it is that it lights up the insula, right? So that's a little little thing at the base of your brainstem that's one of the oldest parts of your brain, and it's responsible for your biological survival. So it does the you know inconsequential tasks like keeping you breathing while you're sleeping, right? Keeping your blood pressure, you know, keeping your heart beating. Um, if you take a hit to that part of the brain, you know, like an action sports or whatever, a big enough hit, they can't even keep you uh, alive on life support for more than ten or fifteen minutes. It's that important. You'd think evolutionarily we'd have built a permanent firewall around that bad boy. Like no, nothing's getting in, right? Yeah. All I got to do is tell you an inspiring story and I'll light that thing up, which means two things. It's getting blood flow. It's getting electricity, which means I just told you an inspiring story and I changed you at the neural level in your brain at the biological survival center. That's how important our stories are to us. That's how linked our biology is to our stories. And so we are crafting these stories in an unconscious way, uh, but they're affecting us in this significant way. And, and the more traumatic the story, um, the, the worse it is. So you can think of your brain like a record. Right? Well, <laughs> some of you listening maybe have never seen a record, but uh, the easier or the more positive the story, the shallower the groove. And the more traumatic the story uh, or the event, the deeper the groove, right? And so you can imagine if you smack a record player, the needle's going to bounce and it's going to always land and default into that deepest groove. So our traumas, our worst stories, our stories that call, cause us the most pain, as soon as you take any hit in life, as soon as you're rattled in any way, boom, your needle gets slapped back to that worst story, which is what you were describing your dad going through. Um, and then we try to heal those. We try to you know, drink those away. We try to, some, you know, we try to, you know, party those away. We try to watch TV to get those away. We try to serve Facebook to get those away, but, uh, but they're with you all the time. And unless you can do that internal work, then they're always plaguing you. I used to tell people when we'd climb mountains, I'd guide them up mountains, like, look, bring what you need in the bag, because when you get to the top, there's nothing above us. There's nowhere left to go. And the only thing you have with you is what's in the bag, right? Well, it's the same. It doesn't like we chase happiness and, and we've got this inverse relationship with happiness. When I, when I, you know, make a hundred grand, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. And when you get there, you're still the same you with the same stories. There's nothing there that you didn't bring with you already. So if you can't fix it now, you're not gonna be able to fix it then. If you can't feel it now, you won't feel it then.
so many people. Jeez, man, I, I think we should have booked like three hours because <laughs> I, I, I may have to have you back on because this is so deep, so important for people listening. Literally, this is what you need to change your life. All of the, and I say this in like in my seminars and my live events and my coaching practice on here, it, doing isn't sustainable, being is. And this is your being. You cannot sugarcoat this. You cannot put external shit on to cover this. You might stop drinking. You might stop smoking. You might stop getting high or, or chasing porn addiction or gambling or whatever. But until you deal with the neural pathway, like you said, the, the deepest groove, the canyon that the, that the needle for the record player just automatically goes into the moment that your brain spikes and you see like... You know, I, I always say to people, like, if we're standing at an intersection together and there's a car accident, I've never seen, you know, I've never been traumatized by a car accident, you know, thank God. And, and so in my mind, I, my brain milk goes to, oh, that sucks. I hope those people are okay. Right. But I'm not triggered by anything. There's no deep groove there. But meanwhile, you saw potentially a family member get killed in a car accident. So your brain automatically goes to, holy shit, I remember how painful that was. We're not going back there. And that brain just starts to fire to protect you and keep you safe. That's what the brain's job is. It has to keep the body safe. The body is your vehicle. And the brains can't do anything without the body, right? So, I mean, it can, but it, it's, it's more limited, let's say. So working on the, the psychological, the deep level neurological traumas and stories and, and neural pathways that your brain has programmed for you to keep you safe is your number one thing. Surrendering yes. to the things that happen, uh, understanding how to, to, to shift yourself out of those stories by gathering evidence. And I want to talk to you about this deeper. Like, how can people, oh, there's so many things I can ask you, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just remember that this, this episode for you listening, this is what you've been asking for in your life, not asking me for. The universe delivers what I need for you. Like I'm just bringing people on. I'm the catalyst. This is what you've been looking for. You want to make a change in your life? Stop going to seminars and reading bullshit books about how to change your habits. Your brain is in control of those habits, right? Would you agree with that, Rich? It is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But then, and I would take it a step further that you are in control of your brain. There's this great psychologist who does work on OCD. Um, he's amazing. And now I can't, I can't remember his name, but he has a book, You Are Not Your Brain. Um, and the idea being that um, your brain is, is a mechanism that you're in control of because people, we can get trapped into that, this sort of, um, one of the keys to happiness is whether you have an internal or an external locus of control. And that's psychologist mumbo jumbo for whether you believe you're in control of what happens to you or whether you believe everything's happening to you. Great point. And if you, or you and if you believe what's that happening for you or to you, big differentiation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like everything that, everything that happens to me happens because of me. Right. That's what, that's what I tell my clients. Um, and, and that, that is not to say that like, your life sucks because you want it to suck. That is to say that you're making the decisions that take you there, right? And so if you believe that your brain is this thing that just does these things and so you're stuck with what you got, then you develop an external lo locus of control, a victim mentality, and you can't do the work. But if you believe that you are, whatever you are, your soul, your essence is beyond your brain and in control of it, now all of a sudden, all you need to do is learn how the brain works and everything is available to you. And that was the most um, 
tremendous realization for me in the two years, you know, I did this two years of research. I call it like a personal PhD or a black belt in happiness and story that I got. And the biggest thing I got is that if you just decide I'm in control of my brain, then that's it. It's just like a car. You can make a car do anything you want it to if you know how it works, right? You can make a bicycle do anything you want if you know how it works. And so I went and learned how the brain works in relationship to happiness and story. And now I can control, control and manipulate my own brain. And once you do it once, once I rewrote that story about my mom's death and felt the lightness and freedom that came on the other side, and once I admitted to myself that I'm making all this shit up, that's it. Every story, every belief you have, you made it up. Now, maybe some people gave it to you, like you might have had a, a, a parent or an elder or a teacher kind of impose a story on you accidentally, but still you as a meaning-making machine, as a human being, assigned that meaning to that thing. And, and something important that you were talking about a moment ago about sort of leaving that, um, leaving that past behind, and it's just a thing that happened. It doesn't have to have the meaning. That, that's a crucial distinction. You are a meaning-making machine but you're in charge of what that meaning is and you can change it by changing the stories you have around it to move forward. And once you take that control, uh, you'll be addicted to doing this work. Now, any area of your life that doesn't work, you just say, what's my story about that? Is it true? Even if it's true, does it matter? Is it serving me? And then you can go through a process that I teach, the story evolution process, and just rewrite that story. Now, it's not that simple, right? You have to do the work, and, and we can get into what that work looks like. But, but really, um, the core of it starts with deciding that you're in control of this. You're in control. If you just accept that you're making all this shit up, um, then why are you writing such shitty stories for your life? Who would do this, right? Like, you would never... The stories you tell yourself, if you think about them, not the ones you tell your friends over drinks, not the ones you can put on your Facebook profile, right? Not the ones you're going to put on the witch, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings elf are you quiz, but <laughs> late night sitting on, sitting on the couch with a whiskey with yourself, the stories you tell yourself, you would never say that out loud. You would never stand up at a party and say, I completely suck at everything. I'm fat and terrible at sports. I'm never going to go anywhere. I'm never going to make a hundred grand. I'm never going to find love. You would never stand up and say that in front of a group of people. So if, if you want a way to start to conceive of better stories for your life, think of a story you want to tell. Think of a story you want to shout from the mountaintop. Think of a story you'd be proud to stay on TV, right? Those are the stories you need to start writing for your life to upcycle your outcomes. Whew, dude, this is, jeez. Uh, all right, there's so many places we can go here. I want to I wanna talk to the, the people that are in doubt right now. The people that are saying, Ian, Rich, you're full of shit. You can't change your stories. They're not made up. We're not in control. Deciding about your stories is not my decision. It just happens. That's how it is. This is what happened to me. Rich, you are 100% right. I'm going to go to my grave in, 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 in fighting this, this battle. We are 100% in charge of the stories we tell ourselves, 100%. And on top of that, what we've been fed by our parents who are, who are not as evolved as we would choose them to be, right? It's not their fault. It's what their choices were. And so society, school, and parents, especially for men, I mean, women have their own set, but we're, we're talking about men being on purpose. Men have this additional storyline given to them about, you know, providing or about being successful or making a lot of money or being tough or not being emotional or vulnerable. And the bullshit, like old adages that were kind of placed on us, maybe probably our generation, maybe the younger generation isn't, you know, 
isn't really uh, ex experiencing that as much, which is actually a really good thing because there's a lot more vulnerability in the male community as, for the younger people. And it's becoming more widespread for older people to like tap in and be emotional, be vulnerable. I mean, I was crying on the podcast I did yesterday with Dennis Moroldo because he started talking about when he started making choices that he didn't have to be that successful principal that he thought he was supposed to be. And the stories he was telling himself were, well, if I'm not this guy, then I'm not going to be anything. I'll be a loser. I'll be unsuccessful. I'll be a quitter. And he said, he looked at his daughters and he said, man, this is, I can't do this to them. Like, I have to be a model for them of making choices that actually serve my life, not allowing the shit in that just doesn't serve me. And I complain about it, yet I don't make a choice to make a change in the story, in the lineage. You know, it just, that's so simple. So for all the doubters out there that are saying to us, you're full of shit, guys. While I'm not in control, I can't do this. I, I don't think my stories are made up. They're as real to me as you sitting here in front of me right now. And the answer is no, they're not. They are to you because you've, you've perpetuated them for so freaking long. They're so ingrained. That needle has played, I always say to my wife, like my wife and I, uh, you know, relationships need to be broken down. They need to be taxed and tested so that you can find the weak spots so that when shit does happen that's major, it doesn't bury you, right? And so <laughs> my wife and I have this saying we'll say to each other to trigger like when we're in a story of like, is your tape playing right now? Like I'll say it to my wife, is your tape playing right now? And she'll say, yeah, it is. And that is our job to step up and say and recognize, yeah, my tape's playing right now. The tape that says I'm not good enough. The tape that says I'm not important enough. The tape that says, you know, that story that says no one cares about my opinion or me. Or if I don't do this and I'm not successful, I'm going to be a loser. I'm going to be in the middle of the crowd. And if I'm in the middle of the crowd, I'm lost. And if I'm lost, I'm not loved. And if I'm not loved, I'll die. Right? That was my story fucking simple. And I know that's registering with you guys who are listening because we all have those stories that drive us, that run us. So Rich, where does, where does, um, like the first thing, like you mentioned it and it sounds so simple, but to someone who's untrained, you know, I've been working on this shit for a long time. You've been working on this for a long time. For someone who's listening in their car or wherever they're listening right now, and there's tens of thousands of people that are going to listen to this, maybe even hundreds of thousands. This episode, this is the one that people need to listen to. How does someone just start? You know, they woke up this morning with anxiety and they started to mask and avoid and use, you know, I call them escape pods to get away from that feeling inside. Maybe it's their job. Uh, maybe it's the money they make. Maybe it's who they are at their job or in their business, uh, you know, or, or as a professional. What's the first step that someone can take to actually stop, pull the needle off the record for a second and see reality and hear reality? Is that possible? Yeah. And the first step is questions, you know, like, so it's always, um, it's always challenging with this sort of stuff. I think when John about uh, saying to your wife, you know, it's your tape plan. I'm like, whoo, you are a brave man, Ian, brave man. Like, <laughs> we, we, we together to do that because we need <laughs> playing. We're affecting our growth as humans uh, uh, individually and as, as humans together in a partnership for life and as parents and as, you know, whatever business partners, we knew that our stories were not allowing us to live our best, our finest, and, yeah, and evolve yeah. to the level we need to, to show our children. And subsequently, I mean, we have a lot of coaching clients, so we owe it to them to challenge each other to see what stories are playing. 
Yeah. And I, and my, my wife, especially cause I read the book is fond of saying, what's your story about this? Or, right. you know, like, or that's just your story. I can't really get away with doing it the other way as much. And so, and with clients too, I've found it, you know, you know, someone will come to you with this sort of presenting symptom thing they're talking about. And once you dig into it with some questions with them, you find out they're here for a totally different reason. Right. Yeah. But it's the questions that, that build the rapport and create the safe space to do that. Um, like, you know, I have other coaches come to me and, and other counselors come to me and ask me, how do I get someone to see that they have a bad story about this? You know, cause I can see it, but if I just tell them you've got a bad story about this, boom, the walls go up and the way is through questions. And, and so it's the same way, um, with yourself, right? The way you circumvent your pre-programmed filters is with questions. I, I believe, and I say this over and over again in the book, that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the questions we ask and the stories we tell ourselves. And so, the easiest first step is if you've got an area of your life that you are not happy with, your weight, your relationships, your work, whatever that is, you just simply ask yourself, what's my story about this? Because your, your brain is really good at rejecting things, right? But it can't reject questions. So, if, if you're you know, heavy and you're, and you're saying, well, I'm going to get thin. Your brain can easily be like, yeah, right. You've tried that a hundred times. What are you going to do? Like, we've all got that jerk in the back of our head and he or she is loud, right? So, but if you say, how can I work on getting thinner? How can I work on getting healthier? Or what's my story about my weight or my body? Your brain has to think about that. It's wired to do that. That's how it works. Yeah. So stories sort of, sort of take you out of the filters or questions, pardon me, take you out of the filters for a minute. So you ask yourself, what's my story about this? Then you ask yourself, is that true? And then you ask yourself, even if it's true, is it serving me? And then once you answer that question, and if the answer is no, here's my story. It is either true or it isn't, and that's fine. It, but is it serving me? You have to make a decision then. Now I know. I know I have this story, and I know it's not serving me. What am I going to do? And it's, it's very hard. It's a rare person that's going to be like, I'm cool. I'll accept that. I'll, I'll roll forward with this super crappy story that's negatively affecting me now that I know it. So the questions lead you down the path of all those knee-jerk reactions. And people are like, no, these are real. These are true. To those people, I would say, you're right. And to the people who say, you know, like you're full of shit or whatever, I'd also say you're right. I'm the youngest of five Irish and Italian boys. If you think you're the first person who's told me I'm full of shit, you're really wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, but Arguing with me, discrediting me, isn't going to move your life forward. I, I say that in the book because you have to do the work. And it's the point at which we move past the decisions to the hard work point where your brain's going to kick up all of the objections, where your brain's going to start tearing me and my theories apart. And no problem, I don't take that personally, but it's not going to make your life better. So when you, if you feel that, if you feel that like tearing apart the message, that is your brain's way of trying to keep you from making a change. Your brain doesn't like change, right? And so you can ask yourself, well, what's my story about that? Do I do that a lot? Like when I'm faced with something that I need to make a change, do I discredit the source and move on? Do I rename and keep my problems or do I dig in and push past that? And if you dig in and push past that, that's the moment everything in your life will change. That's the moment you remove the responsibility from Richard Ian to change your life and you put it on you because that's where it is. Everything you need to do this work is pre-programmed into you. You don't need a guru. You don't need a book. You don't need anything but what's programmed into you. You just need to remember that and learn the process of tapping into it and moving forward. I mean, the thing that we provide is a guide and a course correction as you drift. 
right? As a coach, like people will say to me, like my life is, is so different. It's changed so much. Like it's, 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 it's a life I actually want because of you. And I'll say, thank you. And it's not because of me. Like it's because <laughs> of the structure that I told you to live your life in or uh, a question I asked you and challenged you on to do work for yourself. You did this. I was just a catalyst to change. I was just a course corrector when you got off course. I was there for you. That, that's it. I don't change people. My systems and procedures can help you change you. And I can guide you, or Rich can guide you. However, it, it's still all on you. It's all on you. You know what I mean? All right, Rich, we had some technical difficulties. We're back. We're going to splice all this together. So where I, where I was, was talking about was when people say to me as a coach um, that, I help them through this, or I, uh, the reason why they're here is because of, you know, as uh, me as a coach. And the reason is not that it's because we are course correctors and we are giving them systems and procedures to work with within their own life and their, within their own brain to make the changes that they need to make. And that's it. They don't do the work. Nothing happens, no matter how much we have, how talented we are. So let's talk about that course correction. And that is, and I also want to talk about the power of choice in there too, because there's so many people that say, yeah, my childhood's been so bad. My, my, you know, I have never had a good relationship. So all relationships are this, that's the easy way out to say, to generalize. That's what's so effed up with our society now is we generalize so many things and so many different types of people that it's so unfair to you because you're not giving your brain a chance to expand. So let's, let's, let's go with the, the course correction. Um, and also the identity people create around these freaking, this one thing that happened and they live that for their whole life or they, you know, let's, let's talk about identity too. Yeah. And it's funny that you said course correction. Cause that was, you know, if I, like I would write 10 more books tomorrow before I'd name one <laughs> titling the book was like the hardest thing. Yeah. And course correction was one of the potential titles because the point of this, this book is what do you do when you take a hit? How do you how do you course correct? And you're right. So many people do just take a hit in life, and then that's it. They've been bounced off, and they're going taking an want to go and pointing themselves where they want to go, uh, and, and getting there. And as a coach or a guide, that's the point. The point is to remind them that they have everything they need. Give them a couple of steps to remind them. You know, Plato said all learning is really remembering. Allow them to remember that they've got everything they need on board to make these changes. And then course correct so that their life isn't a series of hits that knock them to an end destination, but their life is a series of recoveries from those hits to continue to go where they want to go. Jeez, uh, you got to say that again, man. That was good. That was awesome. I'm going to write that down. Life isn't a series of... <laughs> life isn't a series of hits that knock you off course and, and push you to an end destination. Life is a series of recovering from those hits and getting to where you want to go, pointing back to where you want to go and getting there. And there's a, a real specific set of tools that can help you do that, to help you recover from those hits and course correct. Um, and so many people, they do, they, they lose a loved one, they lose a job, they get a divorce, and that colors and defines the rest of their life. And so the point of this book was to teach people that that can happen and then you can still choose where you want to go. Now, that new des that destination may be different than it was before you got the divorce or before you lost a loved one. It's not that I expect you to go on like it didn't happen or be unchanged, but at least make a conscious decision about where you want to go. Yeah. I used to teach uh, whitewater rafting, so I taught people to be raft guides for about 16 years. 
And uh, I'd give them these three mantras to use when they were learning a raft guide. And one of them was point where you want to go and get there. And it's said in that order for a reason, because when people try to get in a raft for the first time, they want to drive it like a car. That's, that's, that's their framework, right? Except that the road is like a greased up Teflon conveyor belt that never stops pushing you towards your obstacles. Um, so they get in the seat and they start driving and chaos ensues. Yeah. And what they hear the guide before them say is all forward. So they just sit down. They're like, guiding is all forward, all forward. Let's go. And that's how most of us are living our lives. Pedal to the metal, all momentum and no direction, right? Be like getting in the car in the morning, the GPS turns on and it starts telling you where to go. And you don't even question whether it's taking where you want to go. Your stories are that GPS, but you got to program it. You got to tell it where you want to go. So point where you want to go and get there. Use your stories to point to the end destination of your life and then get there. Like you were talking about in some of your live events, helping people vision out the end of their life, or you were doing this for yourself, yep. these end of life visualizations. I tell people the same thing. When we teach people to scout a rapid, we teach them to scout it from the bottom up. Because what people want to do is walk up to a rapid, look at the top and be like, oh, here's where I need to go. Boom, 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 boom. But if you don't know where you need to come out, you don't know where you need to start. So you scout a life just like you scout a rapid from the bottom up. Like I know at 80, I want to be sitting on the porch with my wife, high-fiving and talking about the amazing life we led. All right, if that's the end destination, how do I get there? And are these stories helping me get there? And is the way I'm living my life after I took this hit, this job loss, this, this loss of life of a loved one, is the way I'm living now taking me there? And if it's not, we got we to gotta do that course correct. And, and part of identity, our identity is made up of our core beliefs and our stories, they all come together for us to decide who we are. So, you know, my story of being a guide, that's a powerful driver in my life. I'm here to guide people. Like in my, in my coaching practice, I want us to have the most brief interaction we can. I want you to get in. I want to help you remember what you need to remember to be killing it on your own and get out where you don't need me. I, I'm a guide, right? And that one serves me. But so many of these other identities that we come up for, with for ourselves don't serve us. And we have such a death grip on that because we believe it's truth. We have this real um, sort of grasp on what is true, even through our senses. Like we believe our five senses are giving us true and accurate information. And none of that's true. We're not actually getting all that information filtered through our emotions and our past experiences. So I don't mean this in a post-truth sense, like the political landscape we've just been through, no. but <laughs> but your, your senses, uh, like people think their sight's a direct projection of the world, but it, it's not. Felt when like NASA trained, yeah, exactly. When NASA trained the early astronauts, they thought being upside down in space would make them crazy. So they strapped some goggles on their head for 30 days that inverted the world, made it upside down, and they, and they made them wear them at night when they slept, everything. And it did kind of throw them off and, and, and some wackiness in, ensued. But around day 26, one of the astronauts woke up and the world was right side up again. Yeah. He's still wearing the goggles. Yeah. But his brain said, for the last 30 years, the world's been right side up. This isn't right. And it just took what it was taking in and flipped it. Yeah. So you are in control of those mechanisms. What you're taking in isn't pure truth. It's a very filtered personal virtual reality to you. And so if you're, if you're going to be living in a virtual personal reality, why not make it the best one you can possibly make it? Jesus, dude. That is, that's so uh, profound. And... Um... I, it, there's there's God, so much I can do with that. So I, I want to talk about, um, you know, obviously we have people that listen that are that are really high up on their evolutionary and, and, and development journey. And there's people that are just starting out for those just starting out. And in, 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 in addition to those people that are really high up, um, your choices every day affect you every day, whether you think so or not. 
and the choice to associate yourself like I, I i will i meet people all the time especially in la like i'll meet different cultures of people and i'll say and they'll say to me like this is what i want how do i get it and i'll say well you got to start making different choices when you're in those situations or, or before you get to those situations. You need to change your habit, your habit and thought patterns around these things. Your habits are not serving you anymore. You must eliminate them. In our coaching business, we have a four-step. Illuminate, or to bring awareness, eliminate, get rid of, uh, calibrate, dial in, and accelerate, gas pedal down. Once you're aligned, right? It's alignment and acceleration. And I say to people, do this, try these exercises, try these things. And they'll say, yeah, listen, my culture doesn't do that. That's not what we do in my culture. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, well, then that's your story. Like, no problem. But the moment you keep, we were earlier, we were talking about the tape, you know, that, that my wife and I talked to each other about. If that's the tape that plays, then the result you get, you just need to be at peace with. Because if you're not willing to stop the tape and start recording on another tape or start playing another tape, that's your choice. Your culture, your parents, society, school. School is not education, by the way. School is schooling. It's there to teach you something to get you somewhere for them. It just so happens that some people take it as like, oh, cool, I learned about history. I want to be a history major. Great, awesome. But they taught you how to pass those tests. They didn't educate you. College will educate you for the most part, right? But there's, there's still an agenda yeah, yeah. there too. But you have a choice every single freaking moment to shift your life and make the choices and, and have the habits and eliminate the people and eliminate the habits and eliminate the skills and the stuff that, you know, mindset that does not serve you anymore. You could change. You know, in Landmark, they say transformation happens in a moment. That's true. Because in that moment, you get to transform. You might not feel the effects for six months, but at every moment, you get to transform and stop the story from playing. And it's, it's, it's profound, profound stuff. But I love what you said about scout out life from the bottom up. Because if you think about the thing that sustains life, water, it always seeks the lowest levels. Always. Water never rises. It always seeks the lowest levels and just is at peace with that. And so if you seek, like, if you seek understanding what's going to be at the end and then reverse engineer your life, you have a plan. Because will this serve me? No. Will that serve me? Yes. Cool. Go that direction. Instead of being at, at, at almost a hostage in your own brain to your own effed up stories. It's crazy. It literally is crazy. <laughs> you know? it, it is. And we, well, and, and we so much, um, we're so much beholden to those stories because of the truth and the meaning we've put into them. Yeah. And so, you know, people who just keep having the same results over and over and over again. I don't say this from a, like a pedestal, like looking down on them. Like I've overcome this. I'm, I'm a part of this same mechanism. My brain works the same way that everybody listening does. When I start finding myself in a rut and I'm, and I'm hitting the same wall over and over again, I stop and say, well, wait, what is my story about this? Because th th these outcomes are mine. I've created them, right? Like uh, one of my good friends says, if you take the word present and you split it up, it's present. Yeah. You present yourself to this moment. You took all the actions that led you to right here, right now. And if right here, right now is a place you've been five times before, you've got to change the story that's driving you to this place. You've got to change the direction before you initiate any more momentum in your life. And so when clients come to me, mostly these are like, you know, high performing, successful people who now feel totally stuck. Yeah. They don't want to put the hammer down anymore. They can't do anything because they feel stuck. They're, they're either having success without fulfillment or they just don't feel energized about what they're doing anymore. And every single story 
to the bottom of why they even got there in the first place. Yeah. And they've never said it out loud. Like, so you have a story about everything. You have a story about who you are as a CEO of your company, who you are as a coach, who you are as a father, as a husband, all these stories. And you've never, or maybe you've done the work, but most people have never said them out loud, yeah. which is just insane. And if you take a moment and just write those down and say them out loud, all of a sudden it'll hit you like a ton of bricks, the ones that are helping you and the ones that are really causing you a lot of suffering. So let's go back to the meaning making machine. That's something that I've heard before. And it's totally true. We are meaning making machines. Our meaning is made by the stories that we're running, the tape that's running in our mind. We're making meaning because again, like I said, with the car accident or with a, you know, uh, seeing a, a, a baby pigeon who's hurt, I don't know, whatever, whatever, make up any scenario you want. If two people are standing there, they're going to feel different things because of the story. The meaning making yeah. machine is something that I, I, I want people to pay attention to because every time you start to make up the story, and I always equate it to like getting cut off in traffic or somebody butts in front of you at a, a restaurant or a drive-thru or whatever it might be. Um, somebody gets a promotion over you and you work really hard. At that moment that you start running the story, that's when you stop and go, what meaning am I making and where is it coming from? When you can ask yourself those questions, you can get clarity on what stories are running in those different sections of your life. And if you're running a story of I'm not good enough, when you get passed up for a job promotion or you're, you know, you try to you try to start a company and it failed, like I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. Look where the lineage came from. Look at back when your mom told you this or your dad told you this or your teachers like mine did always told me that I was never going to be good enough. I'd never be successful. I'm not smart enough. Meanwhile, I'm really intelligent. I just not performing in the way that they wanted me to. And it, and it messed me up. It really messed me up because my parents were nervous and they got me tutors and all these things. But I had to overcome that story when I first started my business in 2012 that like, who am I? Who am I? Like, how am I going to make this work? Like, I couldn't make school work. And my mom literally said to me, listen, you know, you're not good at test taking and you're not good at math. So it might be a little difficult for you to sell real estate. And that was another, I mean, th there's a whole bag of issues there, but like she <laughs> didn't mean anything by that. She was running a program from her parents and she was, and I was hearing two generations of a program that you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You can't do this. Hold back theory. So it wasn't my mom. So I didn't blame my mom. I said to her, you know, your programming is not serving me too well right now. And it's not serving you as my mom. <laughs> you know, I said it in a lot meaner way, by the way, because I was really, I let the meaning be hurtful. And I said, watch me, I'll show you. Right. And I turned it into motivation. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, she didn't mean anything by that. She was just trying to protect me from failure or from feeling like not good enough or not smart enough. Like all those teachers programmed her to believe I was. I mean, think about that. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's, that's four rivers mixing of stories that came out in that one statement. And I, you know, I took that in my head and I made a choice at that moment. I can believe her or I can test the theory. And I decided luckily to test the theory, but I, you know, we believe think the stories and the meaning that people make and the stories they give us, we believe those. Unfortunately, we run our lives by those and they're not even ours. They're theirs, you know? And not just our parent cultural stories, themes and tropes from movies, social media, you know, yeah. like yeah. I, I dive into sort of all the different streams and feeds where you get bad stories from in the book. But, but like in your mom's case, 
you know, one of the things, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent at this parenting's really hard. Being a yeah. dad's the hardest thing yeah. I've ever done. Yeah. Um, uh, so I screw this up all the time, but one of my driving principles is to try to not to give my son bad stories about himself. And, right. and of course I do, he was throwing a fit this morning and, and I got on him about throwing a fit. And, and I know in that instant, I started to write a story for him about that, that moment and the emotions in that moment. It's so hard because that, that kind of programming with children is so automatic, so easy. And, and we also, we're now, we're trying to, we're writing a story about the future for our kids. So when your mom said that to you, in her mind, she'd gone all the way down to the future. Like, okay, he's going to try real estate. He's not good at this, this, and this. He's going to fail. When he fails, that's going to hurt him. When he's hurting, I'm hurting. That's going to make him less successful in his next endeavor. I should try to push him towards an endeavor he could be successful in. And she wrote a decades long story, yeah. none of which was grounded in the reality of who you are. No. And, and so it's, I have a chapter of the book called The Core Four Family Style, which is talking about these core four habits to help you create the right neurochemical environment in your brain. But one of the things you can do, you know, as a family is really to try not to write those stories for the kids, not to write stories out of your own anxiety, kind of like your mom was for your kids, future stories, but also about their behavior. This is my smart kid. This is my uh, adventurous kid. This is my meek kid, kid, whatever. Yeah, my problem kid. Dig into that more because there are parents listening and I get a lot of feedback from all of these and they're like, hey, how do I do this with my kid? Or how do I, how do I course correct my kid? Or how do I stop my kid from doing this? Most of the time I say, well, take a look at you. You're the model. If your kid's yeah. bad, it's because you exhibit that same behavior. If your kid is super smart and studious, it's most likely because of you. Now, there are the outliers, totally outliers. Like, I'm different than my parents, but I'm a beautiful mix of both my parents. And yeah. so, like, go into that deeper, how, how easy it is to mess a kid up and program them from your bullshit stories that you think are real, that you instill in your kids, and now you, again, you'll continue another generation of invisible, made-up stories that run your life. It, I mean, it's, it's in a fraction of a second. Like when I, well, I'll talk a little bit about clients and I'll talk about my own dad yeah. journey, but when clients come to me, I often, like we dig into the stories and we'll be hitting a story that's 40 years old of a, a parent said, well, you're just not good at sports, right? And that's plagued them all the way into now. Or, or like you said, you're just not good at math and they've struggled with that their whole life. So those, those stories are written in an instant and we as the parent or the, the mentor or the coach think nothing of it, but that just wrote a story that affects someone for the rest of their lives. And it's so easy to do in an unthinking way. So it requires you to be really uh, careful and cautious with your language, which is something that on the course of a busy day with kids throwing tantrums and all the stresses of parental life and then add on pandemic parental life and kids at home 24 hours a day, it's really easy to screw that up. Like I have a son who's, he's a deeply feeling kid. He, he has big emotions, big reactions, everything hits him. And, and it's easy for him to throw temper tantrums and me to, to get mad and say something like, quit being mean to us or quit being mean to your sister. When the truth is he's not being mean, he's grappling with huge emotions and he doesn't know what to do with them. And in that moment, my job as a dad is to try to model and teach him how to deal with those emotions so he can effectively process them in the future. But if I'm not careful or I'm being busy or he's done this 20 times in one day and now I'm fed up, it's easy to spit out like quit being mean or quit being overly emotional or take it down a notch or all these things that to us are just sort of a a shortcut to trying to get this thing that is frustrating us to calm down and really does damage to those kids. So I always tell people like when your kid's doing something that's pissing you off, they are violating a story you don't know you have or a rule you don't know you have, right? Yeah, about, yeah. about the world. 
So if my son's being super emotional and I'm getting pissed about that, well, it's because I'm the youngest of five Irish Italian boys and you didn't do that. You didn't show emotion. You didn't show weakness. You didn't, that wasn't acceptable, right? But I'm evolved to the point where I know that's a bunch of bullshit, but still that stuff's built into me. It's not, my brain isn't instantly filtering out all of my upbringing, you know, so I have to take an active role in doing that. And since we can't be on our game every second of every day and we can't be killing it and being perfect with our kids, nobody is. Um, the best thing you can do is try to create counterpoints and counterexamples and positive stories for them. So we do a, a couple of things in our house. Um, you know, one is creating rituals that give them positive stories about themselves. So like before we go to bed, my son and I have this thing where we're like, hey, uh, I love you. I'm proud of you. I had a great day with you. I'm so, so lucky to have you in my life, you know, things like that. And so every day I've got this ritual that he looks forward to and he says it back to me that's just reinforcing like we can have a good day, we can have a bad day, we can have an emotional day, but at the end of the day, no matter what, I value who you are as a human being. Yeah. Um, we do a lot of letter writing in our family for all birthdays and Christmas, but also just, you know, once every couple of weeks, we write the kids a letter and leave them for them, telling them, you know, how much we love them and how much we appreciate who they are. Love and who they, uh, you know, how they get to show up in the world. And then you know, the core four habits, you know, that we can talk about are getting eight hours of sleep, getting, you know, 30, 45 minutes of exercise a day, getting at least 10 minutes of mindfulness meditation and a daily gratitude practice. So we, um, modify that with our family to where we have a really set kind of strict bedtime routine so that our kids get at least, you know, 10 hours of sleep a night. Um, we, uh, we get them out always to exercise, ride bikes, get some energy out um, every day, you know, so that they're not crazy <laughs> and that, that their brains get, that get all the, you know, sort of dopamine and happiness and do some chemicals they need out of play and exercise. And then uh, we actually do do meditation with our kids, which with mixed results, it's really hard and frustrating, but you're sort of, it's just like traveling with kids. Traveling with kids is hard and frustrating, but then when they're 14, all of a sudden you've got a killer my son's only seven and he's already a killer traveler, right? Like, so you sort of, you pay for your play when you do these things with kids. But um, my son, when I can actually get him to do it, if I can get him to sit down and do a green ball meditation, by the end of it, he'll be like, dad, I don't, I don't want to come out of the ball. Like he'll be like, if I can really get him into it, yeah. he gets the, the, the positive effects. And then I think the most important thing we do is this daily gratitude practice that's kind of modified for kids. So we call it favorite parts and appreciates. At dinner, we just ask them what their favorite part of the day was. And then we do an appreciate for each person in the family around the table every night so that even if the kid's been pissing you off all day and you guys have been just buttonheads and you've been in fights, you stop and you took a minute to tell them what you appreciate about them as a human being, right? So you reset that. You know, there's, there's all these metrics that it takes two to three positive reinforcements to overcome one negative interaction, right? You think of how many negative interactions you have with your kids all the time. You need to heap on some positive, not senseless positivity, not tell them stuff that's not true about them, not just tell them they're the greatest of all time. But, you know, I appreciated how you supported your sister today. You were a good brother, you know, that sort of thing. So, and you're also taking the time in that to highlight the qualities that you think are valuable in a human being, kindness, um, you know, uh, curiosity, all those things that you think are valuable. And so those, that modified, you know, family core four process that we do helps to give the kids the tools they need to um, create better stories, have more positive bits of information to work with, which we haven't gotten to that, how the brain works and how we, we sort of compile information, but um, it, it helps them compile positive bits of information rather than negative. And we're giving them counterpoints for the times we screw up because we're parents, we're going to screw up. We're going to give our kids bad stories. That's it. You just have to accept that as a given and do, do your best. Yeah, man. So I do a, lot, a very similar thing with my daughter. We do morning affirmations. Um, and it's funny because she, 
had to try out, like we're obviously moving to LA and, and we wanted to get her into a really cool uh, nature-based private school here. Cause I'm just, I'm not a fan of public schools not happening for me. It's either private nature-based, something like that Montessori or, or not, or homeschool. And there's so many good schools here. So one of the things we did is they said, you know, we'd like a video of your child. But my daughter is on video with me almost every day, just doing opening toys and, and like, and doing, making slime. So she's very versed in video. But then we sent her a video. We sent the school a video of her doing her affirmations to the camera. And they were like, wow, we've never seen that before. That's so cool. Like, how do you get her to do that? And I said, she does it on her own now. She just watched me for a while as a model. And, um, and now she does them on her own. And then at night, we do something similar where we, what were you grateful for today? What's something you learned today? And then um, I take this note from Sarah Blakely's biography, uh, who started Spanx. And she, her dad would ask her, what did she fail at every single day? So what they did for her was they made failure a necessary part of, of success and trajectory forward. I love that. I, I talk about it on almost every episode here. I love that. Yeah. And instead of introducing the word failure into my daughter's life at five years old, I'll say like, hey, is there anything that you did today that you wish you could do better? And she'll say, yeah, I wish I could go all the way across the monkey bars. I'm like, cool. So let's talk about how you can get there in a month. You know? And then I keep her, we keep her brain open from like, I don't know how to do that. And it just shuts off to I'm, I'm curious now, like, how can I do that? So I don't want my stories of like, or my wife's stories are like, man, she's, those monkey parts are eight feet off the ground. Like, you know, she could fall, hurt herself. I don't care. If, she's, if she falls and she hurts herself, she's a kid, she'll be fine. You know, it's not my job to protect her from every single thing and like have this little like in, inner word kid that, you know, I don't know, it's, a, it's not a word, but you know what I mean? Like a kid that's yeah. scared of the outside world. So I want to do my best to reinforce that. And I, I like the green ball meditation you're talking about. That's, that's really a, a very... Like we do meditation together as a family, but like it's like a guided kids meditation for five minutes and we just sit there and we have a breathing ball. So it's more of the external that we're focusing on where I, I like to teach her how to go internal with that. You're talking about a green ball of light, right? It, yeah. That's a, you sort of envision a green ball in the middle of your chest and every time you take a deep breath it inflates bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually you're in the green ball. And then once you're in the green ball, you're hundred percent safe, you're yeah. loved, you're taken care of. And from there, so one of the things is as they inflate the ball, it forces them to do meditative style breathing without trying to force them to do meditative style breathing. They get into <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm inflating the ball. And then once they've taken a couple minutes to do that, they're already doing the right breathing and they've gotten themselves calmed down. Yep. And then 90% of the time, that's enough, right? If you've got a seven-year-old boy and you get him to calm down doing anything, like you won, right? It doesn't, like what happens next doesn't matter, right? right. But then from, from there, you can, you can start to have them do like a see, hear, feel practice inside the ball. You can have them do a body scan practice inside the ball. Uh, you, you know, you can tailor it to whatever their struggles are for that day. But the idea is to try to give them techniques to manage their emotions and manage their life that will serve them later in life when they take these big hits, right? Like, I don't know if I'm going to be here for them tomorrow or 20 years from now. And so I've got today to teach them as many things as I can teach them to be resilient and to be able to move past things and be able to handle their emotions. And yeah. that, that's hard for a seven-year-old. <laughs> what can, you know? can parents do right now? Because I mean, I know, you know, there's so many people I know who are on coast or autopilot or um, default when it comes to programming their kids in terms of a positive way, a serving way for their future. 
And there's a lot of, I think, resentment and guilt and fear that parents put into their child rearing. Uh, resentment from what they weren't able to do. So they restrict their kids um, by their language, by their actions, by their, their responses. And then there's just this default mechanism of like, you know, the kid's going to go out and play. So like, I'll just let them go out and play. And they're not interacting. They're not teaching them anything. They're just kind of leaving them to almost raise themselves except for the basics like food and shelter and a little bit of, you know, driving them around. I know too many parents like that. And so what can parents do now because for any of you that are parents that are like, shit, that's, that sounds like me, whatever. You're, you're, you, you have no idea how detrimental that can be to your kid. And not in terms of, let's not think about it in terms of detrimental. Let's think of it in terms of what you could be doing for your kid and what you're actually doing for them or to them is detrimental. And so I feel it's a parent's responsibility. I've only been a parent for five years. I have two kids. Like it, I feel it's a parent's responsibility to give everything they've got to that kid, not money, but who they are as a model. And it is your job as a parent to get yourself out of your own way so that you can model the type of serving behavior that you want your kid to use later on in life, where you're going to have a pattern that they're going to have to break later on if they're strong enough, if they want it bad enough, or they're going to continue that shit to their kids and their kids and their kids. And your responsibility to change how a generation operates, it's on you and you failed. My opinion. (laughs) You can email Rich about that if you want to argue. (laughs) (laughs) Solid, solid, yeah. It is irresponsible to be a default parent and to not face your shit and to not get your shit together and figure out what the best ways of serving your life are so you can be a model for your children. That is a person on purpose. That's a man on purpose as a father or a woman on purpose as a mother. My opinion, super strong with it because I know who I used to be and I know who I am today. And yeah, will my kids be perfect? No, nobody will. Do I mess up sometimes? Absolutely. But to, to understand and to be clear about what my behavior and my reactions and the things I'm teaching are affecting on my children, you have that responsibility. You must take that seriously. Must. You know, it's not about raising them and paying for their shit and then sending them to college and hoping that they hope, I hope you do well. See you later. Yeah, I put you through school. You know, like too many, I know too many parents that feel like the kids, like, they're like, well, listen, I, f- I pay for your braces, pay for your freaking college, asshole. Like, go do your thing. You know, like, I don't owe you anything else. Yes, you do. You owe them shit to the day you die. You owe them to be a model of a person on purpose. And you can email me, manonpurposepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to, if you want to counter that, that's totally cool. I'll do another episode <laughs> with Rich all about that. It's your responsibility. Yeah, we... We could talk about that for four hours. I mean, so there's so, there's so much in there uh, and there's a couple of things that come up right away. Like for me, my battle in my own life, um, you know, one thing I try to tell myself all the time is to make my parenting neither a response to or a product of my parents. Yeah, totally. And, and, and so what that means is like my, my dad was like an old school, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're not bleeding a lot, quit whining kind of guy, like, yeah. like a, you know, a, chest out, pat on the back, hug only if you asked for it kind of guy, right? Sure. Yep. Uh, and, and he's never said I love you to me without me saying it first. He'll say it if I say it. Yeah, <laughs> but, interesting. And, and so as a response to that, I'm incredibly effusive with my son. And my son is like a little like hugger, kisser, lover because I've been like overly effusive with my right. love for him because yeah. it's what I didn't get from my dad. 
and and that's a good example, right? But but you can take those things in a bad way. So to be intentional about that parenting decision. So what do I think is right? What do I think represents my values and how I'm going to move forward? Regardless, not because so much of it is my dad did this, so I'm not going to do this. Or my mom did this and I loved it, so I'm going to do this and model that. And the idea is to take mom and dad as role models. So your parenting is a, a choice, not just a, a reaction to, you yeah. know, or, or a product of what you've experienced. So hang on one um, second, Rich. You, you broke up there for a second. So you're saying like, look at your parents and take in information from them that you liked and remove the stuff that you didn't. And that's your responsibility. You're the filter to your children based on like, I love stuff that my mom and dad did and I don't like stuff my mom and dad did. And it's my conscious decision because it's programmed in me and, and in you. It's, it's my conscious decision to either bring that forward or not. Yeah. And then bring in new information. I just read an incredible, uh, incredible book uh, that I would highly recommend called Hunt, Gather, Parent that uh, evaluates um, to parenting and it, it has a lot to say about the conversation, uh, you know, we just had, which is um, one thing I try to do is to make sure I'm not trying to craft a story for my children, but, but giving them the space and the tools to craft a story for themselves. So I, I think we are, those of us who have, uh, like you and myself, who've come from places where we weren't happy and gotten to places where we were and did a lot of work to get there, we have this impetus to grab everybody by the shirt and drag them along with us. Like yeah, you, right. you got to see, this is so good over here. You got to come along, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure like myself, that's gone badly for you at times because some people aren't ready and some people don't want it. And, and with our kids, I think that's sort of the, the, the ultimate fail is trying to drag them along a process to make them better. Uh, if there's some stories, there's some built-in stories in there that says they're, they're not great as they are. And yeah. so I'm trying to approach this parenting journey in terms of all the work I do should be on me, not them. So like I've dealt with anxiety since the day my mom died, right? Like anxiety around losing my children or my wife, right? Because it was a really traumatic experience. Sure. So, so that makes me sometimes overprotective. So I don't need to make my kid safer on his mountain bike. I need to make myself better at letting go. The work has to be on me. So um, good. So good. Uh, and, and like, you know, I, um, I tend to have a controlling personality coming out of the guide years. Like one of the ways you make sure you don't kill people when you're guiding them in the wilderness is you control all the variables you can so that when the variables you can't control come, you're as prepared as you can be. Right. That is an awesome trait in a mountain guide, killer trait in a raft guide. It's a super shitty trait in a dad, right? <laughs> like try to control every aspect of your kid's life so that when something, you know, a curveball comes, you're ready. And your kid isn't going to listen to you when the curveball comes because you've been sitting on them so hard the whole yep. time, right? And so then the work has to... There's resentment that builds up and there's hatred and there's, there's guilt and... Frustration. You don't want to deal with that with a teenager. Don't. <laughs> yeah. And so the work has to be on me. How do I, how do I you know, negate that in myself and not be controlling on the kids? So what you want to do is be giving them the space to write their own stories, teach them how to pick the best bits of information to compile those stories and then get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Um, and so if you're a default parent where you're just kicking them out in the backyard because you don't want to deal, that's bad. But if you're kicking them out in the backyard to say they're going to have an hour of time that is completely autonomous and I'm not going to say a word and they're going to do, as long as they're not killing somebody, they're going to do whatever they want and have their own life and world and space, then you're making a conscious parenting decision that can be 
really good. And then after that, if you're creating space to talk to them about, you know, what that was like and what they did and what they enjoyed about it, what they didn't, you can then help them craft the stories from these experiences that, that move them forward, right? Like, you know, talking for your kids when you're on a zoom with their teacher and the teacher asks a question, you find yourself answering. Cause I do, I answer for yeah. him. I'm like, wait, there's a, there's a fully autonomous human being over here that has the answer. Why did I just say that? Right? So my son had an issue with his teacher the other day and he was real nervous about it. And I said, look, buddy, I, I believe you can handle this. I'm just off screen. If you need me, I'm here, yeah. but I want you to talk it out with her. I want you to work it out and do it instead of me. Right. And so that, you know, knowing when to get out of the way and be a more hands-off parent, but because you, you have intention behind it, because you know the results are going to be better for that, I think is, is good. And from the outside, we can look at somebody and they look like a default parent, but they're being intentional about it, you know? And so yeah. um, I, I, I think it's, it's all about the intentionality behind it. Like for me, parenting is a journey of learning who this little person is and giving them the space to be that person and not trying to make them the little person I want them to be, which is super hard for someone who's like type A wired like me, right? Like like me me too. I had a very, um, I had a very hands-on mom. She's a phenomenal parent, but she's very hands-on. And that wasn't good for me as a, as a very independent type A dude. Um, So for all of you default parents out there, or for all of you that are helicopter parents out there, we're talking to you or the ones that just kind of coast down the middle. We're talking to all of you, even the ones that are doing great stuff. There are ways that you can make choices to change. And um, if you are default, it's mainly because, and Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, or correct me if this doesn't serve the audience, um, your default because of your own fears, your own traumas, your own story, and you're so afraid to get involved with this kid's life. And I, I deal with that all the time in my coaching practice. Parents that are so afraid to talk to their kids, deal with their kids, get involved in their kids' lives, ask them the deep questions, ask them, teach them about emotions, and they're doing so much bad, so much non-serving by staying in their own story and their own fear bubble. Not getting out of it is hurting your children. And so people are on, who are on purpose, they take action, right? They take action on, on evolving themselves to help the next generation or just help themselves in general for, for themselves, for their relationship. The only way your business grows is to how you grow. And it's the same for everything else. Your relationship with your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, relationship with your children, your relationship to money, your job, your business, everything will grow to the extent that you do. So if you're sitting still right now, if you're on default for your life, but you're complaining about it, like so many people are, which by the way, those of you listening, like, take this, heed this. If you're complaining about it and not doing anything about it, like take action today. It's not wrong. Just means that you haven't taken action yet. Take action today. Make the call to that person and tell them how you feel. You know, share with your kids when you were scared about something so they don't feel alone. Like just those are little things. Rich, I, we got to wrap because we're like over an hour and I, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> but why don't we do this? Let's have you back on and let's dig into some of these topics really deeply, like parenting. I think we could do a whole, a whole episode just on the stories you tell yourself around parent, how you were parented and how you should parent or how kids should be. I think we should do that within the next couple of months. You game? Yeah, anytime, man. I'm cool. happy to come on anytime. This is yeah, killer conversation. I hope the audience is getting, getting good yeah, stuff yeah. out of it. If, if and, they uh, aren't, they, their, their volume's off. Trust me, man. <laughs> this is powerful shit. I love it. 
I love it. Yeah. And I, I would add, like anytime, there's so much guilt around parenting. So anytime we even wade into the waters of discussing parenting, there's, there's so much uh, room to end up sounding like, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm doing it well, do it like sure. me. Um, and, and I think the very first thing every parent listening can do is be compassionate with themselves. I am, because I'm wired to always be better tomorrow than I am today. Yeah. One of the results of that is I'm super hard on myself. Like if I screw up with my kids, I just, oh, I take it like a ton of bricks and I'm so hard on myself. And as parents, the first step, if you want to make any kind of change in your parenting or in your life, the first step is giving yourself some grace and letting yourself off the hook. There's no manual for this. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. It's not for the faint of heart. If you screwed up today, let it go, right? Yeah. And then once you let it go, you make the decision that any parenting work you're going to do is on you because there's just, like I said before, and I reiterate this because it's so important. So much of it is we think, what's wrong with my kid? Or why is he acting like that? Or why is she acting like that? Or how can I change their behavior when like 150% of the time, if you change your behavior, theirs will follow. And yeah. if it doesn't, then it's on them as a little human being to take responsibility for that. Right. All you can do is give them the best model and do the work on you and then give yourself, you know, some grace for when, when you screw up, you know, um, so they, well they are our teachers, you know, they they came here to teach you what you need to know. Yeah. Um, and you just got to do the work to be open enough to, to listen and help them move forward. You know? Yeah. Nothing we're saying is wrong or right. We're saying that if the situation's not what you want, then the choices you're making aren't serving. That's it. Change it. Yeah. Just ch make changes Absolutely. that are, and make choices that are serving. That's all. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's right. Nothing Rich is saying or I'm saying is right or wrong. It's just we chose to have more, to, to make choices that are more serving of the life and the results that we want. And that's as simple as we can make it, right? All right, let's wrap there, man. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come back on. We're going to talk about parenting because I want to get into some stuff around um, learning disabilities, ADD, things like that with children. I, I want to kind of get into the stories that parents tell themselves around things like that. And, and I'm going to talk about my own experience. Uh, from my parents' point of view, from my point of view, um, as a kid, diagnosed with ADD at like five years old, and how much of a crutch um, it was told to me it was, but how much of an advantage it actually is. And so I want to dig into that. We're going to dig into a lot more parenting. So Rich Curtis, where can people find your book, man? Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Change, just uh, search Change Your Story, Change Your Life, Curtis. Um, uh, it's, it's in all three formats, uh, audio read by me, uh, digital and print book if you want it. Cool. Yeah. Love it, man. This dude, this has been uh, super grateful for having you on. You know, I always, there's so many people that come on, uh, or, or want to be on the show and I let the universe decide. And, um, <laughs> this is one where I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not getting it. And the moment I saw your book title, I was like, yep, got it. Okay. That's why he's coming on. Cool. Dude, this has been a very powerful conversation. I got a lot out of it. I know the audience is going to get a lot out of it. Thank you for your commitment, your mission, your activities, your action. Like to be a man on purpose. I mean, you that that you truly are, and uh, and the world will benefit, man. So thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for being on here, and and we'll we'll definitely have you on again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It was an awesome conversation. I'll come back anytime you want, man. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to the Men on Purpose podcast, where our mission is to educate, elevate, and activate every man to truly live their best, most fulfilling life possible. To find out more about the podcast, our guests, or becoming a man on purpose, visit menonpurposepodcast.com and choose your most purposeful path forward.